Jeremiah chapter 23, the book of the prophet Jeremiah, the 23rd chapter, it's right after Isaiah in your Bible. very beautiful and unique prophecy concerning the coming and the promise of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, given about 600 years plus before his birth. And we read in verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it's true. We thank you for the beauty of your promises because of your faithfulness in keeping them, Lord. And we thank you for those promises that have been fulfilled. We thank you for those that are presently being fulfilled even in our own lives, Lord, concerning faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life and fellowship with you and your people throughout all eternity, beginning even now. And for those promises that will be fulfilled that we look forward to, Lord. So we thank you. I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment now as we consider what you have promised in this 23rd chapter of your servant, the prophet Isaiah. So help us to understand your word. Open our hearts and our minds to the scriptures. And we pray, Lord, that by your spirit you would open your word to us, that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of all our hearts, would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you know anything about the... Uh, prophet Jeremiah. He lived in a very troublesome time. You know, we've been studying First and Second Kings before that. Well, actually, we started years ago in Genesis, and we've just been working our way through. But we finished Second Kings. Now we're looking at Esther, because on Tuesday nights I'm talking about, on our Bible study evening, uh, because Esther takes place during the period of the captivity. But the uh, book's before that, the historical books lead up to the captivity, and we find in the days of Jeremiah, he's mentioned, he's, Jeremiah is mentioned in 2 Kings, and the events of 2 Kings are mentioned quite thoroughly in Jeremiah, and one thing we can conclude, if you were living in Judea at the time when the Babylonian army was beginning to threaten they would call the southern kingdom, although at that time there was no northern kingdom. The Assyrians had come a generation before and taken away the ten tribes that were in the north and replaced them with other people. But the kingdom of Judah had continued, but it also continued in the sins of Israel. They were doing the same abominations. They were sacrificing their children to Moloch and other false gods. They were setting up idols. They were committing immorality that went along with the worship of those false gods. They were cheating each other. They were oppressing those that were in power. The uh, people that had authority were using it to exploit and extort. And you can read about that in Jeremiah, and you can read about it in First and Second Kings. And if you were a faithful follower of the Lord in those days, you would say things are really bad. We have kings that look out for themselves and that despise God. They might name him hypocritically, but they really don't fear the Lord. Um, before this time when this prophecy was given, if you remember, if you read in chapter 36 of Jeremiah, he recounts, goes back, Act 36 actually recounts events that happened before this prophecy was given, and we have in chapter 23, because later Jeremiah relates a lot of the history behind the prophecies. That's when uh, Je Jehoiakim, the king, was given the scroll that Isaiah had written, that God had given the, up to that point the prophecies and revelations that Jeremiah had received. And Jeremiah had read it on the floor of the temple, and it was basically a denunciation saying the Babylonians are going to destroy this city and because there's no repentance. Trouble is coming. When Jehoiakim was then presented with the scroll later, 
he was there and his royal entourage, the other administrators and princes were there and it was, apparently it was a cold morning and there was a fire going and so he took a pin knife, that's a knife, we don't use that term much, pin knife is where you sharpened your quill so you could write or your, whatever you had, your stylus, and he took it and just cut Jeremiah's prophecy into pieces and the other princes that were there stood by and laughed with him and he threw him in the fire. Now there were a couple of his princes that, that, that said, don't do this, this is, you, this is really wrong what you're doing. But he ignored them and so the other ones, they applauded it. Well, God had Jeremiah rewrite his prophecies and so that's why we have the book of Jeremiah today in, in its fullness. But those are the types of kings they had, men that mocked the word of God, men that wanted to suppress the, the true prophets of God, false prophets that were running around lying to them, promising them prosperity and you know everything was going to be great no matter how wicked they were. Um, they loved those guys. So that's what this book is denouncing. So when we come to this 23rd chapter, it starts off, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Those that were in charge, the kings and administrators, those uh, that were at, in the temple that were supposed to shepherd the people, the Levites who were supposed to be teaching people the word of God and shepherd them, uh, it applied to all of them because the whole administration under uh, Jehoiakim and then later Jehoiachin, his son, um, just got wickeder and more wicked. So, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. That was the reality right there. They had a, a government and they had a culture that was wicked and it was kind of like every man for himself. They were greedy and covetous. So God pronounces a woe. Therefore, thus says the Lord against, of Israel, against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. Now we kind of understand this. We live in a state that's being depopulated because of bad government and bad administrative policies. Not everyone in government is bad, and we should never think that. But we see a lot of really oppressive laws and people talk about, yeah, if you want to have a successful business, you might want to consider going someplace else other than California. And we see this huge exodus to the point where they've actually discussed charging an exit tax because of all the money that's going out. So if you want to leave California, you basically have to pay a ransom is what it's come down to. Uh, so it's not, we're not completely unlike these days. You know, we can say, yeah, things are pretty bad. But it's not quite as bad as it was in Jeremiah's day. But God says, I'm going to deal with this. We can take heart in that. God sees everything. He sees the oppression of the poor and those who are trying to do what's right. We need to make sure that, uh, as someone asked, I believe it was they asked Abraham Lincoln, uh, is the Lord on our side during the Civil War? And he said, it's more important for us to ask, are we on the Lord's side? And uh, the same thing for us. But God says this, he says, but I will gather the remnant of my flock. Notice that's the remnant. There's always that small group that fears God. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. Note God talks about his sovereignty. He's the one that brought them there. And bring them back to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. That's God's promise to his people. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. So as far as verse 4 is concerned, many believe, well, this is a reference to when they returned back from the captivity, uh, and when they had men like Nehemiah, and then the governor Zerubbabel. These were godly men who feared God and who were actually were concerned for the welfare of the people, not for their own enrichment. Others say, well, this seems to go beyond that because those were troublesome times also. There was trouble during the days of Nehemiah and uh, Zerubbabel and others because you had Sanballat and Tobias and other those, the guys that were troubling Israel, trying to stop the temple from being rebuilt. So there was trouble even in those days. Some believe it points to a time beyond that when the Messiah has come and the shepherds are referring uh, to those governors in the church that God raises up men to look out for the flock of God. Uh, so they understood it would be way beyond just the time of the captivity. But it is a promise from God. It's something anyone who's in a position of authority 
whether in the church or in a family uh, or in a society, to take heart or to take heed and then take heart. God's promises, I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them. That's our duty is to feed the flock of God. This is what Paul told the elders when he met with them, the ones from Ephesus, when he met them at Miletus uh, and on his way to Jerusalem. He told them, feed the flock of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. He's referring to Jesus there, who is both God and man. But God promises this, I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Now, they might not have everything they want, but they'll have everything they need. Okay, God weighs uh, prosperity a little differently than we do sometimes. You know, we, ooh, I want this, I want that. You know, at Christmas time, we have our list. Um, and some of us do, some of us don't, okay? Uh, but, you know, sometimes we encourage our children, why don't you write down what you want? And then we get this, you know, book handed to us of all the things they've seen that they'd like. Um, here God says uh, they won't be lacking, and he will provide. He does provide for his people. What do we say in the 23rd Psalm? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I won't have any lack. And obviously, you know, we don't all have everything we want or desire. If we did, we'd probably destroy ourselves. But we do have everything we need, and we need to recognize and give God thanks for that. And if we lack anything, what does the Bible tell us to do? Pray. James says, you have not because you ask not. And then he says, and you don't get it when you ask because you're asking for the wrong reasons. I'm paraphrasing, but you know the passage in James. He says, because you ask amiss so that you might consume it upon your own lust. So he says, you know, if you're going to ask, you need to ask for the things that are warranted in Scripture and the things that are legitimate needs for yourself and for others. So we have this situation where God gives a promise. Now, right before this, in chapter 22... He's spoken to the king Coniah, which is actually the other name for Jeconiah. And he was just as bad as his father Jehoiakim. But God had said to uh, Coniah that none of his descendants would prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. So that line of descent was removed from the, actually the line that the Messiah was going to come through. And the line of uh, Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin, that was cut off from being the messianic line. And if you read the genealogy in Luke, you see Mary's genealogy, and there you see it didn't come through these two guys. Joseph, by the way, was a descendant of King Jehoiachin in the genealogy given in Matthew, which is generally understood to be Joseph's genealogy. Jehoiachin's on that list. And so anyone that denies the virgin conception of Christ and says that Joseph was Jesus' natural father, uh, they, got, they create a major problem for themselves. And God knew that the Messiah wasn't going to come through the natural line. He wasn't just to descend through the line of a Jehoiachin. He was to be born of a virgin, conceived in the womb of the virgin. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 tells us that. Uh, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And so the Messiah didn't come through this line, and that's why Joseph actually could not be Jesus' biological father, because then Christ couldn't be, Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah. But in Luke, Luke gives the genealogy of Mary, and he takes it all the way back to Adam, and shows that Jesus was descended from Adam through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and through the line, but instead of following the, the line that leads to uh, Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin, he goes through David's son Nathan and then takes it down and shows uh, that Jesus was born of Mary, who was also of the house of David. So God kept his word. He always does. The reason I bring this up, these were dark days. This was a troublesome time. But God tells his people, those who feared the Lord, those who looked to him, they don't have to be afraid. There are better days ahead. There are good things coming. Don't look how this prophecy starts in verse 5. Behold, the days are coming. He says this several times in this prophecy. One other place is in uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. When God speaks about his covenant that he'll make with Israel. In verse 31 of chapter 31, the same thing is used. Behold, the days are coming. In other words, telling them things are bad right now, but there's a future. You have a future. Persevere. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, Well, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, that is, he provided for them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. By the way, this is quoted twice in the New Testament um, as, as what God does when you're born again. God is writing his word in our hearts so that uh, we become those who follow his word. We begin, as Abraham Kuyper said, we begin to think God's thoughts after him. We begin to look at things the way God says they are. So God says, I will write... I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and they will, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then this wonderful promise to believers and their children. <clears throat> no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them, remember when Jesus took a little child and said, Unless you become like one of these, the least of ones. Uh, from the least of them to the greatest of them, that is, all of his people, uh, from the least of them to the greatest of them, he says, they shall know the Lord. He says, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sins. I will remember no more. And that's always awesome when you talk to Christian children, children and covenant children, and you ask them, what do you know about Jesus? What will they tell you? Well, he died on the cross for my sins. They understand forgiveness. And that's exactly what God promised they would understand. Now their understanding grows. Days were coming from Jeremiah. Things were going to be better. Things were going to be wonderful, actually, when Messiah came. Though in this present world there is tribulation, we still look forward to the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, as Paul wrote to Titus and used those exact words. So the days are coming. <clears throat> New days, unlike these present ones. That's a good promise for us to remember. Though there may be great troubles ahead, we have a future. And I've said before, a lot of people are controlled by their past. You know, we've uh, talked about that and mentioned it. You know, you get to control your choices that you make up to a point in life, and then your choices begin to control you for good or for ill. But Christians aren't people who are controlled by their past. We're to be people who are controlled by our future. So know who you are and know what your future is. You may have a past that you say, oh, I wish I could go back and do things differently. Well, beloved, you're forgiven if you're in Christ, and you have a future. So your sins are forgiven. God won't remember them against you. He promises that in Psalm 103. He promises to cast your, your sins into the depths of the sea, and as far as the east is from the west, he says, he's removed our sins from us. And I mentioned this before. In case you weren't listening last time I said it, <laughs> okay, just in case, all right. East and west never touch. No matter where you are, that's east, that's west, or wherever you are, they never touch. In other words, your sins have been removed from you. They're separated from you because Jesus took them away at the cross. So we have great days coming. We're presently enjoying God's favor. We're living in these days that Jeremiah was talking about. The king has come. He is coming again in glory, but he did come first to redeem us. Presently in Jeremiah's time, the shepherds failed and the sheep were scattered. In the coming days, note what he says, a king shall reign and establish judgment and righteousness in the earth. Note that. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch. That's an interesting phrase. A branch of righteousness. The house of David was like a tree, soon to be like a tree cut down. God says, I'm going to raise a branch up from that. A king shall reign and prosper. Now in Zechariah, which is toward the end of the Old Testament, if you want to turn into minor prophets, okay, you have Zechariah and then you have Malachi. So it's next to the last book of the Old Testament. Note in chapter 3, this is, by the way, this uh, Zechariah wrote after the captivity. So Jeremiah's prophecy hadn't been forgotten and God spoke to his people through the prophet Zechariah, and he said, Hear, O Joshua, the high priest. That's not the Joshua that was Moses' successor. This is Joshua who'd come back to Jerusalem after the, at the end of the captivity when they were beginning to rebuild the temple. So God speaks to Joshua, the high priest. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign 
For behold, I am bringing forth, note, my servant, the branch. He's, he's talking about a person here. My servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. It's symbolic language. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. It's talking about when Christ died on the cross. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. In other words, there'll be peace. There'll be forgiveness secured. So we see this this one who is the branch is the Lord's servant. He's mentioned elsewhere, isn't he? Behold my servant, God says in Isaiah several times. He speaks in Isaiah 53 that he's like Jesus was to be like a root out of a dry ground, or you know, he was to spring up where it appeared that there's dry ground. There's no life there, and here comes the Messiah by God's grace. Also in chapter 6 of Zechariah, note this. Um, there God speaks in verse 12, and he says, um, again, uh, speaking to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, from his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Well, you know from the New Testament, that's talking about the church, the people of God being built up as a spiritual temple. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne, for he shall be priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Note, he's both king and priest. But note here, it's a man he's talking about, this one who is the branch. It's going to be a man. That's what he says. Behold, the man whose name is the branch. So they understood correctly, I believe, this is a reference to the Messiah. The Messiah was going to come. He's going to come also as king. Note, he is called the branch, the branch of righteousness. He's going to come. And he's also a king, because that's what we're told in his prophecy. Uh, he says, Behold, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. And that's Jesus. He is our righteousness. We're told that. And a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Christ does rule this world by his word and his providence through his Holy Spirit. If you want to know who's in control of things when it seems that nothing is under any control, Christ is ruling. We see nations judged. We see judgments fall on wicked nations. We've experienced some of that ourselves because of our national sins. God is merciful, and he deals with his people in mercy because of his love for them. There is a remnant. But he said, he told in Jeremiah's day, when things were really bad, look, the one that's coming is, is the Messiah. Christ is coming. He's going to come, and he's a righteous branch. He's going to be part of the house of David. He's from it. Jesus actually, remember in Revelation, he says, I am the root and the offspring of David. Jesus is the one that started all this because he's the God of Israel with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he descended from King David. That's what uh, Paul says when he uh, wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 1. Paul, when he, he says, um, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Spirit. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So Christ is the true Son of David. He's also the Son of God, which was declared because he took away our sins and rose from the dead. So this one that was to come was the branch of a righteous branch and a king, we're told. Christ we're told in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that Jesus is a king indeed. He is the king of kings. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, there we read at verse, uh, really we'll start at verse 13. Paul writing to Timothy, he says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. He's telling Timothy, don't faint when you're called up before the judges and you give your testimony. Christ did the same thing. You're standing with him and he will stand with you. That you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, 
which he will manifest in his own time. And to know how Paul describes Jesus to Timothy. He will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate. I love that word, okay? It's fun to say it. Christ is the potentate. That means he's the sovereign. He's the ruler. He's the top guy. He's the number one. He is the one that is in control. The word potentate comes from the word, or in English it's related to the word potent, meaning powerful. You know, if you buy medicine, sometimes they'll tell you what the potency is of it, and they'll say only take one pill or something like that, or take two, because this thing has potency. Christ is the potentate. He is the sovereign God. The king of kings, there we have it, this king in righteousness. He's not just a king. He is king of kings and lord of lords. So let these petty tyrants make their decrees and rule and do all their crazy oppressive stuff. Christ will overrule them. The saints are the ones under Christ. Because remember in Revelation chapter 1, he has saved us, washed us in his own blood, and made us to be kings and priests unto God. Well, what does it mean to be a king and a priest? Well, priests offer the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving and pray. Kings rule. Well, how do the saints rule? We try to take over the government. That's what we get accused of doing, you know. Uh, Christian nationalism, you know, they're so worried about that. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. I've said before, can you imagine how wonderful it, in my hope is, will be when we have the majority, and I mean the overwhelming majority of our legislatures and elected officials and bureaucrats, when they're, not because they're, you know, we're forcing others out of office, but because the Lord saves them. Can you imagine what our government would be like if the people in Sacramento loved Jesus? In Washington, D.C., if they said, well, what does the Bible say? Let's look and see. Well, we're, we're not under the Mosaic, you know, the, the civil laws of Israel, but the general equity of them certainly applies to us. How, what laws ought we to be making for the good of the people? Can you imagine if there were actually people in office that feared God? Now, there are plenty that profess, and there are people in office that do fear God, but they're generally a minority. And we have a lot of wicked people. But can you imagine how wonderful it will be if in God's mercies we see a true revival and people get right with the Lord and start taking the Bible seriously again as God's word. This is not talking about having the church rule over the state. It's the opposite of that. It's having the state function under Christ by his word and spirit. That's all we're really talking about. We're not talking about violent revolution, okay? That may come from for other reasons, okay? But let it come from somebody other than, than the church. We don't need to be shedding blood, unless it's in self-defense, and we do have a right to defend ourselves and our families. But here, note who is king of kings. Christ overrules these petty kings because he's king of kings. He overrules these little self-appointed tyrants because he is lord of lords, and then, who alone has immortality. Now he's talking about Jesus as to his deity, as, as to his uh, being, his person with the Father, his essence. Because he then says, dwelling in unapproachable light. He's talking about Jesus that people saw and handled. John starts 1 John by saying, our hands handled the word of life. That is, we were with him. Jesus handed us food to eat. You know, John was, you know, leaning against Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. You know, they had the reclining chairs. They were, he was leaning on, he, he loved Jesus, okay? He knew who Jesus was. But then here, he's, here Paul writes and says, whom no man has seen or can see. Well, that's not talking about the humanity of Jesus, because you will see Jesus. But as to his deity, he's God. We can't be in the direct presence of God and, and exist. Remember when Moses wanted to see God? The Lord told him, no man can see me and live. His, you know, I've, I've mentioned before, if somebody was to say, hey, we've got a little you know, half pound of uranium, we're going to separate the atoms in it and you know, split off the electrons and see what happens. We need, do you mind if we do this with you standing next to it? Well, you, wouldn't have, you don't need to plan stuff after that, do you? Because you're going to be gone because the energy that's released is going to be an atomic explosion. Okay, and you don't need a half pound of it to do that, okay, just a small amount. But that's the energy in a piece of dirt being released. Who put that there? Christ did. God's power is, when we say it's infinite, it's so far beyond anything we can imagine. His, the glory of his being, his person, the only one that knows God completely 
Well, to know him completely, you'd have to have omniscience. That means all knowledge. The only one that has that is God. So God knows himself perfectly. And his knowledge of himself is different than our knowledge where we go from lesser to greater. That's how he is. That's who he is. It says in Scripture, his, his knowledge is unsearchable. You can never get to the end of it. And if you don't believe me, get right with God and then ask me, we're ever going to get to the end of this. You ask me that in about 12 billion, trillion, zillion years, okay? And we'll all agree then, you know, this is just beginning. And wow, it gets more wonderful every moment, okay? God is awesome. But note how Paul describes Jesus, this king that uh, Jeremiah spoke of. Whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. And then Paul adds, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and I think correctly so, amen. means truth. Praise God. So this is our Lord Jesus Christ, this king who is promised. He is coming. Note that. I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Christ is in control. You know, these petty tyrants, they have a, an end. They may reign and they may torture and they may trouble God's people, but they get about 70, 80, maybe 90 years, and then they're gone. God's in control of things. And if the men that are tyrannizing and oppressing others knew that, they would stop and consider and begin to get right with God. But that only happens when God has mercy on them and opens their eyes, their blind eyes. And so this king is coming. And just in case somebody doesn't understand what he's going to do, it says, in his days Judah will be saved. That is the true Israel of God. Remember Paul said he's not a Jew that's one outwardly, but one inwardly. Circumcision is not that of the flesh, but of the heart. That is where the heart's been changed, when the flesh has been dealt with. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter uh, 2. And so he says, Israel will be, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Because even in the midst of tribulation, we have peace. Remember Jesus said, in the world, you have tribulation. <laughs> and I love it. He didn't stop there, did he? He said, but be of good cheer. He said, I have overcome the world. Christ has overcome the world. He's in charge of things. We can trust him. This doesn't mean we're not going to have trouble. This doesn't mean we, we're, you know, oh, I don't ever have to worry about dying a martyr's death. What it means is nothing can separate you from the love of God. And the peace of God that passes understanding will keep your hearts and minds through every tribulation you go through, whether it's, uh, you know, in the world persecution, whether it's financial difficulties, whether it's health issues, whatever it is, you know, personal issues, things like that. God will help you through those things. Christ is in control. He is a king who reigns in righteousness. And you can go to him and you can trust him. Israel will dwell safely. And just in case you're wondering, well, can he? Notice what his name is. Now, this is his name by which he will be called. It's all in capital letters in my English Bible. In the Hebrew, it's written very beautifully. And it says, the Lord our righteousness, Yehovah Tidsitkenu, okay? Uh, Tiskenu, or excuse me, Tzidkenu, there we go. Uh, tzedakah, or tzedakah is the word righteous. The new part is R, okay? In Hebrew, they just attach the pronoun to the word, okay? So Tzidkenu, sounds like you're saying that somebody's name and then the word canoe. So if you want to remember that, it's, it's Jehovah Tzidkenu, okay? That's how you say that. It means Jehovah or the Lord or Yahweh, some like to say, our righteousness, who is this one? It's Jesus. Know what it says in 1 Corinthians when Paul wrote to a church that had all kinds of problems. All right? Their problems wasn't so much with the world, it was with themselves. That sounds kind of familiar to me sometimes. Note what he says. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he reminded them of who they were, not to discourage them, not to beat them down, but to get them to look beyond themselves. It says in verse 26 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh. Amen. Not many mighty, not many noble, meaning those of you know, royal blood. Not, not many. He doesn't say there are none. He just says there's not a lot. Not many wise according to the flesh. There are a few wise men according to the flesh that come to Christ. Not many mighty, not a lot of powerful people, not many noble, not a lot of royalty, but there's a few, are called. Note that. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. He's talking about us. 
It's nice to know. I guess I'm one of the foolish things of the world. Yes, you are. So am I, okay? As far as the world is concerned, you're a fool. Because here you are, you're not grabbing and grasping after everything. You're not elbowing other people out of the way. You're not looking out for number one yourself. And here you are, you're being nice. Sometimes you take an, uh, you know, an offense against yourself and you don't always strike back because you have a savior that told you to, on minor personal offenses, not somebody trying to kill you or your family, but you're told in minor personal offenses, turn the other cheek. You don't have to always be right. You don't have to always be vindicated. You can let go of those things and trust God. Sometimes even when you're called to lay down your life for the cause of Christ. But know what Paul says. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Because God's wisdom is going to be shown in your life. And God has chosen the weak things. Notice not the mighty, but the weak ones. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. It's not your glory, it's not your wisdom, it's not your might, but there is wisdom, and there is glory, and there is power at work in your life. It's God's power. So you don't need to be discouraged or say, well, wow, my self-image is really taking a beating. Well, that's probably good, all right? Because look to Christ. Define who you are from what God says about yourself. Not what the world says, not even what other people say about you, not even what you think about yourself. To know yourself, you have to know God. Calvin talks about this at the beginning of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Because you can't really know God unless you know yourself. And you can't know yourself unless you know God, because you're made in his image. Calvin says, so where do we begin? And Calvin concludes, it's proper to begin with God, obviously. Okay, he takes precedence. So if you want to know who you are, get to know God. You're an image bearer. Find out who God says you are, because that's who you really are as a believer. So don't be discouraged. If the world calls you a fool, God, you might say here, he's chosen the foolish things, but he doesn't leave us in that condition, does he? And the, word, the foolish here, he's not talking about those, you know, the fool who said in his heart there is no God. He's talking about those that in the world consider silly or just despises because you're a believer. You know, look at Hollywood. You dare not mention Jesus if you want your movie to be successful, you know. Uh, you always have to play those things down because it might offend someone, but then you look at all the stuff they do that's really offensive. Um, that They're okay with that, okay, because the people in the world don't, don't get upset when they see violence and immorality. But you mention Jesus, people have a fit. Here God has chosen the foolish things and the weak things to show up, that is, uh, the things in the world and shame the things which are mighty. Note verse 28, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. And that just means set it not, okay? God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So God delights in showing his power through the weak vessels. That's us. That doesn't mean we're weak. It doesn't mean in ourselves, but in Christ. I can do all things in Christ. That is all things that God calls me to do and that are right. So God has chosen those things that are not, that is, that the world considers to be nothing, and that in a certain way really are nothing. You know, what are we? James says, what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little while, and then it's gone. You know, I don't know if, I didn't get up early enough this morning to see if there was fog out there, but it kind of looks like there might have been. I know, you know, a couple evenings and other mornings, um, you know, there's fog on the ground. Where is it? Well, it was there, now it's gone, okay? Your life in this world is fleeting, okay? So put God first. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. And don't forget him when you get older. But the point is, is that in one sense, yeah, we're nothing. And yet you're here like Esther. Perhaps God has put you on the throne, he told, Mordecai told her, for such a day as this. You're born right now because this is where you're needed in the kingdom of God. And we see sometimes people in the Bible, it looks like Wow, like Queen Esther, everything hinged on her being faithful. One person was faithful. And God used that one faithful woman to actually save the Jewish race, because at least in the Persian Empire, because remember Haman was getting ready to exterminate. He had everything said, had the king's permission, and sent out permission to everybody to slaughter the Jews. They would, because Satan wanted to wipe out the covenant line is what was going on there. And one faithful person stood up and at risk of her own life went in uh, to the king's chamber or to the throne room, which was a death sentence unless he extended the golden scepter. 
come Tuesday and find out what happened. Okay. Uh, he loved her, I can tell you. So it's going to be it. That's good in the story. Uh, but we see that time and again. Who's to say your faithfulness isn't going to be the hinge that God uses? I would say wherever you are, you are the hinge. By that I mean that opens the door or closes a bad one or door to bad things. You're the hinge. God's put you where you are to influence other people, to influence your family, in your church, in your community, and by your prayers throughout the world. That's why we need to speak up and do what is right. But note, God says here in 1 Corinthians, he chooses the weak things of the, of the world, note that, the weak things of the world, things the world considers to be weak, to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things, that is insignificant, not royalty necessarily is what he's saying here, okay? He's contrasting that with those three things above. And the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. We're not going to be able to stand before God and say, yeah, Lord, you really needed me. I was just so special. Now, God may be pleased to use you. And remember what Mordecai told Esther. He said, because she was a little reluctant because she knew this was going to be at risk of her own life. And he told her, he said, if you don't do it, God's going to raise up deliverance from some other source. And you and your father's house will be destroyed. So he said, God doesn't need you, but he's put you somewhere. And if you're not faithful, God will raise up deliverance elsewhere. We need to realize that. Let's not pass up opportunities to do good when they come across our path and to speak up for Christ. That no flesh should glory in his presence. When we get before the Lord, we're going to throw those crowns. If, you know, hopefully you'll have them. Um, you will have them, by the way. We're going to throw those crowns at the feet of Jesus. Because we're going to say, you get all the glory. What did we say just now in the Lord's Prayer when we ended it? For yours is the kingdom. Why? Because you're the king. Yours is the power, because you're the potentate. And yours is the glory, because you did it all for us and in us and through us to the glory of God. That no flesh should glory in his sight. Now, just so they wouldn't get discouraged, he lets them know, and this relates to uh, Yehovah Sidkenu, but of him you are in Christ Jesus. God in his mercy put you in his son as the Messiah who became for us. No, Jesus, what is he? He became for us wisdom from God. Jesus is your wisdom. That means go to him. Know his word. Trust in him. He will give you wisdom and insight. He'll write, he is writing his word in your heart and in your mind so that you'll know what God's will is. Let's talk about the Bible. You know, we say, well, how does God do that? He does that by having you read the Bible, having listened to it when it's, having you listen to it when it's being read, memorizing it, becoming so familiar with it that when you're tempted, you'll, like Jesus did when the devil tempted him, you'll remember scripture. You say, thou shalt, you, thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When you have scripture in your heart, you have that sword of the spirit. So don't be in a battle unarmed. Okay, the, the word of God is your sword. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. And note, remember Jehovah Tzidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. Christ became for us wisdom from God and righteousness. Christ is your righteousness. His righteousness is given to you. You have a righteousness. It's foreign to your being initially, but then it becomes yours. It's the righteousness of someone else being placed to your account before God. It's called justification. That's received, that gift, by faith alone. Not by works of righteousness that we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us with the washing of regeneration. That's not talking about baptism there. Baptism is a picture of that. But being born again is like being washed from your sins. It's beautiful. That's what the Lord has done for us. And there we have it. Righteousness. It's given to us. When God sees you, he sees the righteousness of his son. And that works in you. And that's the second thing he says. Christ is our righteousness. Righteousness. He's our wisdom. He's our righteousness. And sanctification. That's that ongoing transformation, being conformed to the image of Christ, having God's image restored in us. So, and that doesn't mean you become weird in the world. Yes, that's what they think. That means you become who you're supposed to be. You know, you ever feel anxious? Like, I'm just, I don't know if I'm where I'm supposed to be. Trust God. 
I don't know if I am what I'm supposed to be right now. Trust God. He's at work in you. He's making you by his grace into what you are supposed to be. Sin did a number on us. Sin messed us up so that we became what we were not intended to be. Okay? Death is not part of the original creation. That came in later. Sin, sickness, all the effects of sin in our minds, the corruption of our nature, our desire and lust after evil things, our pride, okay? evil speaking, all those things that Jesus said come out of the heart of a man and defile him. Remember when the Pharisees were concerned that the disciples hadn't washed their hands before they ate? And Jesus said, that doesn't make you unclean before God. What comes out of your heart? Evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, thefts, blasphemies. That's what makes you unclean. That's what needs to get dealt with. Remember, like in the Pharisees, there's the cups that were clean on the outside but full of filth inside. We don't want to be that way. Jesus is our sanctification. He's getting the crud out of our lives. Praise God. One of the ways he does that is he shows us what our sin is, because God works through means. He shows us what our sin is, and then as John says, if we confess our sins, that means we agree with God that what he said is sin is sin, and when we do wicked, stupid things, because we don't sin because we're stupid, we get stupid because we sin. That is, we get dull, not calling anybody stupid here, but we get dulled by sin. He begins to sharpen our wits, so we realize, Lord, I sinned against you. I shouldn't have looked at that. I should have not listen to that. I should not have repeated that. I should not have allowed that thought to be in my head, Lord, and I did. And you might say, well, what do I do? You confess it. You can't cleanse yourself. But you can go to the one who can cleanse you. That's what John says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. You can trust him to do this. And just. There's a basis in justice because Christ died for the guilt of your sin. That's been taken away. The remaining corruptions are now being purged away. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and, then, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll cleanse you. He gets it out of your life. He asks, you know, what, how does that work? Well, he, he's at work in us, but he brings you to confess your sins. It's okay to search your heart. It can be pretty scary. You set time aside, get down on your knees with your Bible open in your bedroom, close the door, as Jesus said to do sometimes. Okay, and you start searching your heart and say, Lord, show me what I need to confess. You may have roots of bitterness discovered in your life. You may have things you're going to find that have been holding you back spiritually and just in life in general. The Lord's going to bring to your attention. Now, he's not doing that to, to make you feel like, oh, you're just, you know, he doesn't want you. you. You're going to feel unworthy. But he does that so you'll come to Christ and recognize what happened at the cross. The guilt of what I did fell on him and he took it willingly how much does my savior love me he knows what i am he knows what i was he knows the filthy hell deserving wretch that i was he knows the people that i hurt he knows the words i said that were cruel they were just were wicked he knows the filthy thoughts i had in my mind and he loved me anyway because he knew what he was going to do that's our savior jesus he became righteousness and sanctification and redemption he bought us out of all that stuff and he's given us a new life. He's washed us in his blood, John says in, in the book of Revelation. We've been washed and made kings and priests. That's our Savior. He loves us, and he did love us then. That's why he came into the world. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas, the incarnation and the coming and the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He became our righteous, our wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories... That means to brag or boast, actually. That word can mean that. Okay, Let him glory in the Lord. What's that mean? It means get over yourself. You have a Savior who really saved you and is saving you and shall save you. He gets all the glory. What do we call this one? Well, how about Jehovah Tzidkenu? The Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, the Eternal One. Our righteousness. He's our righteousness. Note that it doesn't say the Lord, the righteous one. That would be true. Or the Lord who makes us righteous. That's true because he works in our hearts and he brings about righteousness. Brings us into an ongoing conformity to his law and his word as he writes it in our hearts and minds. But he himself is our righteousness. If you have Jesus by faith through the work of the Holy Spirit and you're kept by the power of God through faith, that doesn't mean your faith keeps you right with God. It means God, because you're right with him, keeps you in faith. 
You're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Here we see it. It's all about Jesus. What's his name? Yahweh or Jehovah Tzidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. It's in capital letters in our English Bibles, and I thank God that the translators of our Bible put it that way because we need to see it just that big print. Why? Because that's reality, beloved. That's our Savior. That's the one we love. So as in Jeremiah's day, things might be pretty messed up in politically, internationally, maybe even in our own lives. But it doesn't mean we're without hope. It doesn't mean God's going to leave us in that condition. He's at work, and he will get all the glory and all the praise because he is the Lord, the Almighty, the Eternal One, our righteousness. So let's go to him and give him thanks. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this prophecy that you gave through the prophet Jeremiah. We thank you that we have it today. Help us to keep it in our hearts and minds, Lord, so that we remember, we'll remember who you are and who we are and who we are in your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray, Father, to know him, to know you in him, whom to know is eternal life. And keep us, we pray, continue this work of grace and salvation and sanctification in our lives. Continue, we pray, to write your word in our hearts and minds. Encourage us. Lord, we confess we're not yet what we should be, but we thank you and praise your name that we are no longer what we once were. Lord, we thank you that old man is dead and gone, Lord, and buried in Christ. We thank you that you called us and told us that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. So we thank you, Lord, for that. So be with us now, cheer our hearts, and give us grace to really truly celebrate your first coming, Lord Jesus, and look forward to your second coming at this season. And we thank you now, and we just pray you keep us in your love and grace and we pray that your good pleasure would be done in our lives. For we ask all these things, Father, in the name of our blessed and holy Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. 